So let's go back to letter 18. And we had been discussing the Rambam, how, how the Rambam approached the Tameh mitzvos, the reasons for the mitzvos, and how this ended up becoming the, the, the approach of that, how the Rambam took it, that not necessarily is every detail critical, and it's more about the essence of the mitzvah that, that gives us the hint as to what the reason for it was, has become, this idea has become the legacy of all those who actually tried to figure out the, the, the reason for the mitzvah, okay? So now we are now on page 266. And what he had mentioned is that because the individuals who did try for a deeper understanding of the mitzvah would inevitably follow the Rambam's opinion, well, then if you actually believe that you understand the mitzvah and you understand the mitzvah based on an external, uh, you know, comparative reasoning, well, then if you actually understand that mitzvah, sometimes the consequence is that no longer are you actually involved in the actual practical study of the mitzvah and not necessarily involved in the practice of the mitzvah in all of its little details because it's not as important in, in, in their mind, at least in the way the Rambam is putting it down. Remember, this is a mistake. That's not the Rambam himself has that opinion, but that became what other people thought. As a result, other men who had a more profound grasp of Judaism came to oppose this philosophical attitude and in due course became opponents of intellectual inquiry in general and of the pursuit of philosophy in particular. Certain misunderstood expressions were used as weapons with which to repel any effort to elucidate the inner meaning of Talmudic teachings. In other words, oftentimes in life, there's a pendulum, right? And when people see that somebody on the opposite end is doing something that they perceive is wrong, and indeed there was an outcome that was undesirous. And what ends up happening is they fight back against it so strongly as to almost outlaw the entire study of philosophy. And even the idea of just trying to figure out what's going on. Moreover, no distinction was made in this connection between the questions, what is stated here and why is it stated, okay? So this was actually, it, it, the, the people who are fighting back are also ending up too far on the opposite side where they, where they say, do the mitzvah blindly without trying to understand the why, right? And not only was it not, don't understand the why, but it was even the what is also become something that's an unfair question. That's not even the category of Eidos, which by the very nature are meant to convey intellectual insights, was excluded from this ban on intellectual inquiry. In other words, it says in the Torah, right, the, the first blot in, in Sukkah tells us that you can't have a Sukkah that's more than 20 Amos high, right? And the Gemara explains, according to one opinion, why can't your Sukkah be more than 20 Amos 40 feet high? Right, your schach. Well, the reason is that it says in the Torah explicitly that you should be remembering when you're sitting in the sukkah. You should remember that when you were traveling through the desert, you re you re resided in a sukkah. And if your sukkah is so high above you that you don't even see the schach, then you won't come to remember that you resided in the sukkah. Well, by definition, the Torah itself is telling you that the purpose of this mitzvah has to be to help you recollect the existence, the transient existence, and the survival that we had in the desert that was only possible due to miraculous intervention. But even that would be excluded from, I'm sorry, even that was not excluded from the ban on intellectual inquiry. So even that, like, I don't want to think about why I'm in the sukkah. That, that's already, you're getting too close to the philosophical people. I, I don't want to do that, right? And that's a mistake. Another, another misunderstood passage later led even to rejection of the study of Tanakh, an error about which we have been specifically, almost prophetically forewarned. As a result, when oppression and persecution robbed Israel of the fresh and living contact with the world and life, and when the Talmud had yielded almost all its teachings for practical life, the intellect and its desire for activity inevitably went astray and occupied itself with dialectic subtleties. So 
So he, he's actually criticizing there was a, a school of thought, I want to say somewhere between the 1600s and maybe 1800s, that busied itself with uh, Talmudic scholarship that did not lead to any practical understanding and did not even lead to a deeper, forget the practical understanding, it didn't even lead to, let's say, a deeper understanding that's not necessarily practical, but at least gives us more of a well-rounded or the context of the mitzvah. Instead, it was what we call pilpul, and it was more like just building um, castles in the sky and really just, just studying, but without any practical reason at all. And it became something that's not actually something that was effective and was not something that is considered to have been a purposeful learning. And many people you know, would, would decry that this is what, what, what the Talmud study had become. And then indeed it stopped and, and Pilpul no longer exists for this reason. But that actually was a result, once again, of, well, if you're left with nothing else to study, the intellect needs something. So the intellect is going to be curious and the intellect is going to start delving into something that really serves no practical purpose and might not even be a mitzvah. During this whole period, only very few stood with their intellectual investigations completely within Judaism and built the interpretation of Judaism entirely upon its own premises. In other words, the premises of Judaism. Among these, the author of the Kuzari, Rabbi Yehuda Halev, and the Ramban, Nachmanides, excelled. Generally, an uncomprehended Judaism ruled, especially in Germany, where periods of repression and persecution suppressed any free surge of the intellect. However, the general fundamental conviction that God is the one alone and that the Torah is his will to be fulfilled out of awe and love of God and faith in him remained in full force everywhere. For its sake, life and all its possessions and pleasures were gladly sacrificed in magnificent dedication. In other words, he's saying, when you think about the history of the German Jewish people, okay, and, it, and he's saying in the German Jews, at, for a very long period of time, there was no freedom at all. And as we know, during this time of no freedom, it really was not allowing their people stopped using their minds independently in terms of even how they approached Judaism. However, at no point did they lose sight of the fact that Shema Yisrael Hashem Rukinu Hashem Echad, and that is why, even with all this notwithstanding, they still were ready to sacrifice their lives many, many times during the times of the Crusades. Presently, a form of learning came into existence about which not being initiated in it, I dare not venture to express any opinion. I believe, this is Toy Machasidus, but I'm not sure. We look at the footnote, then we will see. So let's turn to page, let's see, footnote number 13 on page. Nope, it's not, not uh, Hasidus. It's on page 295, and it's actually the references to Kabbalah. And the author's remarks reflect both his respect for this discipline as the repository of the spirit of Judaism and his view that it has been misunderstood and misused. However, if I properly understand that which I believe I do comprehend, then it is indeed an invaluable repository of the spirit of the Tanakh and the Talmud. But it was also unfortunately misunderstood. The eternal progressive development which it taught came to be considered a static mechanism. And what was to be understood as inner perception was seen as external dream worlds, right? So I, I believe what he means is, and, and I honestly, I don't really know what he means, but I think what he means is when, when people start talking about Kabbalah and they think of, let's say, more of a, a concept of like the sea road and how there's these 10 channels of influence through which Hashem affects the world. And they sort of perceive this as a dimension, an external dimension, perhaps a dimension that we can't access, but it is a dimension that actually exists. I think what he's trying to say is, that this is actually meant to be understood more as a how we are supposed to perceive it, 
We're supposed to use our koach hadimion, our power of imagination to sort of imagine this kind of, of world, but it's really all supposed to be an internally based idea. As this branch of learning came into being, the mind could turn either to external sharp-witted dialectics in the study of Talmud, mentioned before, or to this new field of study, which appealed to the emotions as well. Had it been properly, correctly comprehended, it might perhaps have imbued practical Judaism with spirituality. But as it was misconstrued, the practice of Judaism was interpreted to be a form of magical, mechanistic, mechanistic manipulation. That's a nice alliteration. A means of influencing or resisting the asophic worlds and anti-worlds, right? In other words, you start thinking about that when you do this mitzvah, you're, you're bringing down a spark. And when you do this avera, you're bringing down a klipa, you're, you know, there's, you're bringing down uh, bad forces into the world. You start picturing this as if it's like these consequences when, when in reality, that's not really what's supposed to be. In reality, we're supposed to understand that Kabbalah, this is, these are metaphors that are meant to illustrate something that's happening for sure, but it doesn't have to be understood literally. But that ends up being what people did. So he's saying, so we started off with the Rambam's approach, which takes it to a very, very practical level, but used the, the external perspective and therefore led people astray. He then said the, the flip side of people who fought back said, don't think about these things at all. That's not healthy either, right? And it could lead to the dialectic. He said that there was the few and the mighty who were actually able to, to stay in the proper vein along the way, right? And then he's, at the same time, he's also saying, though, don't, don't think that these people because they were not learned and because they were doing it for such a, uh, a long time without any sort of intellectual enjoyment, perhaps, that they ended up not being able to sacrifice their lives because notwithstanding everything, they still were ready to sacrifice their lives for the sake of Hashem, as we see during the Crusades. And now we start talking about Kabbalah. Because the Kabbalah, he thinks, would have been the right, the right vessel and the right vehicle to help us deepen our understanding of, of the Torah and the mitzvahs, of the spirit of the Torah and the mitzvahs. However, it was misunderstood, and that also did not work. So we're going to continue this, Ezra Hashem, God willing, tomorrow night on page 268. Okay, take care, everyone. Be well. Good night.